I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad, and I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive and June. Olive and June gives you everything that you need for a salon-quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive and June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive and June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. Since 2013, Bombas has donated over 100 million socks, underwear, and T-shirts to those facing homelessness. If we counted those on air, this ad would last over 1,157 days. But if we counted the time it takes to make a donation possible, it would take just a few clicks. Because every time you make a purchase, Bombas donates an item to someone who needs it. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST, code ACAST. Welcome to The Other Hand, a podcast brought to you by CJP Economics, a collaboration between Jim Power and Chris Johns, where we discuss the intersection between politics, finance, and economics. Our back catalogue of podcasts can be found at our Substack website, and that Substack site also contains our extensive body of written work. Thanks for listening and reading. If you like our work, please share with your friends and sign up to our newsletter. Hi, Chris. Good to talk again and uh, also very good to meet you for coffee in Dublin City Centre this morning. First one in a while. Enjoyed it. We've got a lot of reaction to our last podcast, um, not least because it was the first one we'd done in a few weeks. So uh, there was a lot of mostly love flowing after that. So that's good. Uh, But we welcome all feedback, as you know. And uh, I got a couple of pieces of feedback Uh, based on what I was talking about that uh, I think are worthy of addressing. Um, I was, uh, well, we were both arguing last week, actually, about the imperative of reducing Europe's dependence on imported energy from Russia. And um, somebody sort of took issue with us describing wind power as green energy and pointed out a number of scientific facts um, that I'm not really qualified, sorry, I'm not qualified to make a judgment on, but I think they're worth highlighting. Um, He said that every wind turbine has a magnet made from a metal called neodymium, and that mining this stuff is incredibly dirty and toxic and creates radioactive thorium. Um, we And of course, we all know about um, the lithium mining for electric batteries and um, solar panels made from coal. So these are some of the things that the guy points out. So in other words, this whole 
um, alternative energy agenda isn't exactly as environmentally friendly as many people like to believe. Um, and I, I think last Friday we were not talking about the environmental elements of alternative energy. We were talking about the need to reduce the dependence on imported energy from Russia. Uh, but 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 it, it is an interesting um, debate, an interesting topic, um, one I'd like to learn an awful lot more about. Uh, yeah, the thing about wind energy, um, I think, is really interesting. One of the trends that I do know about, and like you, I don't know anything about the actual engineering behind these alternative energy supplies in terms of things like pricing and how cheap the electricity that is produced by various sources there's a lot of speculation out there not speculation but informed commentary analysis that solar is beginning to trump wind in in those areas of the world where where the sun does shine not not here in dublin today for sure but there is there is no such thing as clean energy there is such a thing as cleaner energy sources than others but every 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 decision that we make about the environment, and indeed all decisions that we make in life, perhaps, do involve trade-offs. And I think it's always important to be aware of those trade-offs to the extent that we can. And I think one of the problems with our modern politics, actually, and this might seem a bit of a stretch to go from talking about alternative energy to modern politics, but it's that the link is that trade-off. We often talk about economic policies and solutions to economic problems in terms of pushing this button, pulling on that lever when it comes to both economic and political policy choices that are rarely discussed, at least um, in the in the popular media and on social media, in terms of the trade-offs that are involved. There are no absolutes and the, the nothing is a given. Everything is probabilistic and everything involves a trade-off. And we'd have a much more adult, reasonable conversation. And I think our politics would be less poisonous if we did discuss more things, both the science and engineering behind energy sources and a lot of other things besides. I mentioned last Friday, Chris, about reading a piece from a journalist in the News and Star, Dermot Keyes, who was reporting on a meeting that was held in the parish hall in my little village in Waterford, where I come from last week. It's in relation to the development of a pretty huge solar farm. I was talking to somebody down there yesterday, a friend who was telling me that it is likely to result in a civil war in the parish. Um, not the first? Not the first, no, absolutely. But the, fir- the first since 1922, okay? You may be aware also that there's a lot of controversy here at the moment about the Greens policy on extracting turf from the bogs. And I saw somebody comment that if we could harness the hatred the West of Ireland is feeling for the Green Party here at the moment, we could power the whole country with it. Um, an interesting take, but it just demonstrates again how emotive this whole um, environmental agenda is. I think we ain't seen nothing yet that it's, it's going to be a massively controversial subject going forward as we try to move towards our climate targets. Um, another piece of feedback that I got and actually did this feeds into um, a source of confusion I have at the moment about what's happening in the labour market. Somebody messaged me and said that one of the two of us, I actually think it was me, suggested some weeks back that in this sort of inflationary environment that employees pushing for higher wages um, could really exacerbate the problem. And, you know, you can see why employees would look for higher wages in an environment of rapidly escalating inflation. You know, the, the whole 
old fashioned notion of a wage price spiral could become a thing. But this listener anyway pointed out to me that he works in the public sector. And I was aware of this actually, but in the public sector, um, there is now a massive problem with recruitment and retention because um, there seems to be a bit of an exodus into the private sector where wages are rising strongly in some sectors in an environment of virtual full employment. So that, that, that whole issue about how trade unions and wage setting behavior should behave in an economic environment such as this is an interesting one. Uh, this morning in the United Kingdom, the unemployment rate came out at 3.8%. So it's back at the pre-COVID lows. Uh, but the interesting point was that there was a record high level of job vacancies, 1.28 million job vacancies, which is the highest level ever recorded. Uh, you referred last week in the podcast to your experience in Canada, where uh, huge problems with labour shortages and a 25% across the board pay increase was granted. And I'm seeing even, I walked out from town after meeting you today, I noticed in a lot of restaurants, signs on the windows, staff want it. And, you know, it's, there's a serious crisis, particularly in the hospitality sector, but it's it's pretty widespread. And it got me thinking about, you know, where are all the workers gone? It's a very good question. And when I was in North America last week, I asked people that question, people, employers, but just an awful lot of uh, ordinary workers uh, who would tell me that the reason why their restaurant, bar, hotel was suffering was because of these worker shortages. And I would ask, well, where have all your colleagues gone? And nobody's got an explanation, not the people on the ground, nor us economists. At least nobody has a full explanation. In the United States, it's called the Great Resignation. There is some debate about whether or not how apparent or real uh, that Great Resignation is, because there are certain, certainly workers have disappeared from the workforce and have yet to reappear. Uh, unemployment is also very, very low in the United States. Wages are picking up there as well. But it's also the case that employment it has yet to recover, certainly to, to anything like where it should be if it had been on trend since before the the pandemic. We have various ways of measuring what that trend is, hence that that contributes to the debate about where where we could be versus where, where we are. People say all sorts of things to me. Firstly, in the context of hospitality, I think it's the same uh, in Ireland as it is in Britain, as it is in Canada and the United States. An awful lot of hospitality workers are from overseas or from other regions of the continent. In the UK, a lot of hospitality workers were from Europe, so uh, a lot of those people during the pandemic went home and haven't come back yet. More generally, it's people who were employed in these industries, for one reason or another, stopped being employed. They were laid off. They were furloughed. They voluntarily gave up, have yet to return. The question on everybody's lips is that how permanent or temporary is that? And if it is permanent, what are they doing uh, for income? And if it's temporary, when are they going to come back? And nobody really has answers to those questions. I think it is multifaceted. I do think that there, a lot of people will have found better jobs, better paid jobs elsewhere in the economy because the red hot labor market, particularly in North America, but also in the UK, and as you say, to a certain extent, at least in Ireland, means that people have more choices perhaps than they did before. So I think we've got partial explanations, Jim, but I also think it's a bit of a mystery as to where these workers have actually gone. Obviously, one might say it's got a lot to do or something to do with furlough payments to the extent that they're only just ending in certain jurisdictions. And I think that if I'm right in saying you told me today that they've only just ended in Ireland, 
that must mean that some of those people who are no longer getting furlough payments might be tempted back into the workforce. It might be, um, it is said in the United States that people were able to save from their furlough payments and are now enjoying a bit of a break as a result of those savings. And once those savings have run down, they'll be tempted back into the workforce. But as I say, these are all speculations. Um, Nobody has a, a comprehensive overarching explanation as to where all these workers have gone and why there is so much pressure particularly in hospitality. It is a major challenge because I think a lot of people discovered um, during the lockdown period that just how antisocial the hours they work in the hospitality sector actually are. Also, you know, the the rates of pay um, are significantly lower than in other parts of the economy. So you there, there, there is a massive challenge here. You just wonder how you rebuild the hospitality sector, which is an integral part of our tourism product um, under the current model. So what probably needs to happen is that wage rates need to rise. The structure of the workplace needs to change to give people um, more time off, more social hours and so on. Um, But of course, that will result inevitably in higher price for the product of the hospitality sector. So will the um, consuming public actually accept that? It's it's a bit of a dilemma. Um, the other, uh, I guess, an interesting point, I was in Portugal a couple of weeks ago and I was talking to a few restaurateurs um, who were sort of saying that they are facing all of the same problems that many people during lockdown realised just how difficult their lives were working in the hospitality sector and that now a lot of restaurants are being and pubs are being forced to shut early because they quite simply can't get people uh, working those long hours and late hours again because they got they became accustomed to um, having a lot of time off during the pandemic so it's 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 a massive challenge but a massive massive challenge i think uh, for the Irish hospitality and tourism sector as we move into the summer months, as we try to rebuild the economy. Um, you know, I, I notice in restaurants that I frequent that um, people are being turned away, despite the fact there may be four or five vacant tables in the restaurants. It's quite simply, they just don't have sufficient staff numbers to actually service uh, the full complement of tables in the restaurant. Uh, so it's, 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 it's really hard to say where this is going to end. Um, it, you know, it has been suggested to me that back in the day, Fault Ireland actually used to train chefs for the hospitality sector. And that back then there was much more of a sort of a structured career in the hospitality and catering sector. And that over time that has um, diminished and that it's, it's, it's perhaps, well, I, I don't think it's perhaps, I think it is time that we have got to try and, make these careers attractive again um, to try and attract people into them because um, in a fully employed economy, of course, it's always difficult to attract workers, but particularly into certain sectors. Um, Of course, one thing that could happen out of all of this, Chris, is that a lot of the economic forecasts we're seeing at the moment for the global economy are becoming increasingly negative. And the one thing that would solve this challenge in the labor market would be a significant recession well i don't think i don't think that's much of a solution jim it will relieve labor market pressures unfortunately from the demand side and the higher unemployment that will result from a global recession 
is the thing that would put downward pressure on wages. Or right. I'm, I'm not suggesting it as a solution. Yeah. I'm suggesting no. it as a possibility. I'm just teasing you. Um, but you're right that a recession is something that people are talking about. If you read the financial press and the economic literature at the moment, the possibility of recession is being talked about more loudly every day. There are many different examples I could cite. The Peterson Institute, which is a well-known research institute in Washington, uh, has published some forecasts today that has slashed its global growth forecasts, not to the point of recession, I would stress. But nevertheless, uh, the way forecasts normally go is that they don't all jump to one one situation to another in one go. They tend to be salami sliced. So whether growth is rising or falling, you'll see a progression, incremental changes to the forecasts, and certainly the increments at the moment are all to the downside. The World Trade Organization, the WTO, cut its global growth forecasts by quite a lot, actually, today. There's a, um, in financial banking, investment banking circles, there's a well-known survey of the world's fund managers called the Bank of America Survey. It used to be called, in our day, Jim, the Merrill Lynch Survey. And according to the headline that I've seen today, it says that global growth forecasts amongst that community of presumably very well-informed people are at an all-time low for the survey. These things are forecasts, and we won't go through all our reasons why we are wary about forecasts, but it is certainly indicative of the way expectations are going. If you think about putting all of what we've said together, growth forecasts coming down, Lots of people speculating that this is going to end up in a recession in at least one or more countries, possibly a global recession. And that's because the the combination of the energy shock, the higher interest rates, higher inflation, eroding real incomes, all of that is potentially a recipe for A, a slowdown and B, possibly an actual recession. Lower growth, higher inflation, higher interest rates. It all feels like the 1970s, doesn't it, Jim? I've said before that the 1970s was was an inappropriate comparison because of the unique circumstances of the 70s but there's a horrible series of parallels starting to to occur the first oil shock came at the end of the vietnam war which itself was an inflationary impulse just as the in a different way but war today is an inflationary impulse by ukraine energy prices commodity prices food prices excess budget deficits as a result of the vietnam war Lots of public spending at the moment as a result of previous and current financial crises. Every every set of circumstances, I think, is is unique. But some of the parallels with the 1970s are beginning to be horrible, economically at least. Back in my days in college, we, we had a textbook, I think it was for the master's, called, uh, it was a macroeconomics textbook by Bruno and Sachs, uh, Jeffrey Sachs uh, and Michael Bruno, uh, but I think it's junior. That's a junior cert textbook these days, Jim. It probably is, Chris. Shows my age. <laughs> Thanks for that. That that textbook was very much focused on the supply ch- supply side shocks shocks, excuse me, in the nineteen seventies and how they gave rise to this phenomenon called stagflation, which describes. Uh, high and rising prices and very low levels of economic activity. You, you were mentioning today, well, I read it as well on our Substack account, we got a pretty thoughtful comment from somebody basically arguing that uh, the, the parallels between now and the 70s are very different and requiring different solutions. Before I come to that exact comment, I think it's worth pointing out, or at least 
mentioning that we get lots of comments back from our podcast these days and apologies if we don't get around to answering all of them it's gratifying for us that we get so many that we can't actually deal with them all these days only only so many hours in the day so apologies if you please don't feel neglected it's it's just one of those things the other thing is you stand a much better chance of getting answers uh, if you stick the comment on our website um, which some people do uh, others contact us directly via email or via social media platforms. And it's very easy to miss, particularly a tweet or other type of similar type of contact. The The commentator um, who, who goes by the name of Sean um, says all sorts of interesting things in a very long comment, actually, which which is also welcome. We, we, we really do embrace these kinds of discussions. And he makes, I think, an excellent point that um, he says, I see the crux of the inflation issue is how long it will take Moscow and Beijing to make the right political decisions on abandoning the war and zero COVID policies respectively. And of course, he makes the point very well made that political pride is at stake. Um, Certainly from what Putin has said today, there is zero chance in the immediate future of the war being abandoned. So I think Sean's hope is going to be um, a forlorn one. And as he says, the longer the, the longer this goes on, the more inflation does spill over into wage demands, the first thing that we were talking about, and service costs, because that's another big component of inflation, which brings me to today's inflation print from the United States, which is the highest, I think, 1981 or 1982, Jim? December 1981. There you go. Um, and there's something for everybody in the audience in that print, and it's the way economists slice and dice these sorts of numbers. The headline number was slightly in excess of expectations, so a, a wee bit disappointing, but not perhaps as disappointing as previous some previous numbers have been. Um, what is called the core rate of inflation, which strips out food and energy, which you might argue, well, what, why you're just stripping out all the stuff that's going up. But it is important to uh, look at this concept called core energy through an economic cycle, um, core inflation um, through a cycle, because it does tell you something about those underlying wage price dynamics that we've been talking about and and other things as well. And that actually fell and it's been falling for a little while now, which is which is mildly encouraging. But the bit of that inflation number, this is very geeky, that wasn't encouraging was that there were there were hints of service price inflation. Um, which which is not great. So I, I think that on balance, we still have, you know, a, a big inflation problem in the United States and elsewhere. What was it? Eight and a half percent year over year. The chances of them hitting 10 percent must be reasonably high. I know that some people are speculating that we are currently at the high of US inflation. That may well be the case, but I, I certainly wouldn't hold such an expectation with any great degree of confidence, given that where inflation goes from here obviously depends on all sorts of things, like our commentator Sean said, on how the war goes, how long it lasts and, and what, what path it takes and what that means for energy and food and other prices. It's not a, it's not a good look on inflation, is, is, is my takeaway. It could have been worse but, you know, we'd all like it to be an awful lot better. Yeah, the, the interpretation certainly is that that co-rate of 6.5%, which, as you say, is lower than expected, um, could suggest that it is starting to be past the peak. So, as you say, I, I agree with you, actually, whether that's true or not will really depend, I think, on how the war evolves and the impact that has on energy prices and, indeed, food prices. Um, in the US report today, as you say, the headline rate of 8.5%, uh, within that, energy prices up 32%, food prices up 
and then service sector inflation starting to come true. And but may I interrupt you, Jim? You know, something we talked about in a, in a much older podcast, which was one of the first signs of supply chain inflation, nothing to do with Ukraine. You might remember we devoted a few minutes of a podcast to the bizarre phenomena of amazing increases in the price of used cars. Um, they actually fell last month in the United States, which you know might be a small sign of some positivity. In the Irish inflation report last week, I, I also noticed that service inflation is starting to pick up here. Up to sort of two years ago, or even maybe a year ago, uh, for a decade, I think, um, service sector inflation totally outpaced goods price inflation. And that has flipped over the last 12 months because uh, as a result of COVID, uh, there was a switch away from services towards goods because of restrictions feeding inflation on the goods side. But now when you start to see service price inflation picking up and uh, looking at the Irish piece, uh, restaurants and hotels, for example, starting to see a significant pickup. So that's certainly indicative, I think, that these wage pressures are now starting to feed into um, and indeed other costs of doing business pressures are starting to feed into service prices. So I think that's when an inflation problem starts to become more embedded in the system. I, I guess to you know call the all clear on this, we do need to see energy prices falling back significantly, and that will clearly be determined by the path of war in Ukraine over the coming weeks and months. If I might just go quickly back to that very long and welcome comment from Sean, he makes the point that one of the reasons why interest rates won't go up a lot in Europe, in his opinion, and perhaps elsewhere, is the high level of indebtedness. We have such sensitivity now to high interest rates because of those high debt levels that it won't take much of an interest rate increase to produce the slowdown in both growth and inflation that the central banks are looking for. And I think that's a wholly legitimate point of view. I don't know whether it's right, but it is certainly something worth something bearing in mind. It is a counter to, to my fear, that which is that we are in for much higher interest rates than the market currently expects. And, and things like mortgage rates, which in the United States are already over 5%, if you want to scare your Irish listeners to death with that thought, I do think that we, could, we, we may not get to those sorts of levels here in Europe. But I do think that uh, things like mortgage rates, because of what the central banks are going to have to do, are going to go up by more than people currently currently think. My instincts at the moment tell me that we're, we're in for a bit of trouble on the interest rate front. Well, it's, it's clear that the US Federal Reserve and the Bank of England are intent on taking rates up significantly higher. The European Central Bank is still more cautious than the other two, but I think there's a distinct risk that you know, over the coming months, you could see the European Central Bank change tack on that as this inflation problem becomes more embedded in the system. Let's move on from that and talk about a couple of news items that I think are worthy of our attention today. And I'm wondering what you, in sitting in Ireland, think of the UK political scene at the moment. Um, we have this peculiar thing of Partygate and Boris Johnson. Rishi Sunak and dozens of others in government, in the civil service in particular, have been issued uh, spot fines or fixed penalty notices to give them their formal title by the Metropolitan Police. Now, that doesn't mean that they've been found guilty in a strict legal sense of a criminal offence, but these things were criminal offences. So it's a, it's a, it's a, a subtle distinction, these, these fixed penalty notices. They've not been found guilty in, in a court but the police under the law have been allowed to fine them without 
making these people appear in court. They can appeal. Um, of course, all the opposition politicians, Keir Starmer and Ed Davey, are calling for Johnson and Sunak to resign. The feeling amongst the Tory MPs that have been willing to stick their head above the parapet is that they won't resign and that they'll be able to uh, tough this one out, as Johnson always seems to do. But we do have the farcical situation in the UK now where, kind of, sort of, Boris Johnson has been found to have committed a criminal act. He is the British Prime Minister. And presumably, for as long as he is British Prime Minister, he's going to be urging people to obey the law. It is a very strange thing. I don't, I can't think of any sitting British Prime Minister that A, has been found guilty of a criminal offence while in office, and if they have, that have stayed in office. Um, that, that's my ignorance of history. I can't think of a single example of either. I'm sure some of our readers, better versed in British history than me, will come up with, with somebody from the 18th or 19th century. It, it is an extraordinary comment on the times that we're living in that uh, these, these people can, can more or less act with impunity and, and just get away with it. Yeah, we, we, we've had a view here in Ireland um, in the past that if that looking across at the UK in the past, that politicians resigned for pretty meagre reasons, okay, that there was a, a, a resignation culture over there in the political system and that here in Ireland it took an awful lot to force politicians to resign. But if you think back to Golfgate, that golf outing in Clifton and Galway, um of last year um or was that 2020 <laughs> we saw phil hogan the european commissioner being forced to resign we saw dara Kaliri, the minister for agriculture being forced to resign um and it transpired that that golf outing actually didn't break any protocols it's it's a fascinating thing in the uk at the moment and i think it is indicative of just how toxic and crooked the UK political culture has become under the leadership of Boris. Um, and I know we're going to elicit um, negative reaction now because uh, you particularly are getting a reputation as being just so biased against Boris Johnson and Donald Trump. Um, and I guess this will just fuel, fuel that sort of sentiment. But, uh, you know, y you have to say, looking at the behaviour of Boris over the last couple of years, it does beggar belief. The question is, will Rishi Shunak actually uh, stand aside? And if he does, and he strikes me as somebody that has a bit more honour than Boris Johnson, I may be wrong about that, uh, but if he were to step aside, that really would up the ante on Boris. Yeah, we've got the bizarre situation where the British Chancellor of the Exchequer at the time of him putting up taxes, cutting state benefits, actually, presiding over the biggest fall in, in, in real living standards in the UK for many a decade. His wife has been revealed to be this thing called a non-domiciled uh, taxpayer. Um, that's an arcane piece of British tax law, uh, which should be of interest to people in Ireland. And I'll come back to that in a second. This non-dom thing goes back to uh, all sorts of historical precedents in the UK, which, with honourable exceptions, have not been explained fully. That, but by the British media. Um, that's partly because most of that media is incredibly lazy when it comes to these things, and you actually have to do some research 
to figure these things out. Sorry, that's that's my moan about some journalists. But it, it, it is interesting, if you'll bear with me, Jim, because Nondon, the only, there, there are only two countries in the world that have this concept. Do you know which two they are? I presume it's Ireland and the UK. Yeah, and yeah. of course Ireland has it because of the historic association, shall we say, with the UK and the, the um, incorporation of a lot of British tax law a uh, hundred years ago that's never quite disappeared from the statute books. First thing I'd say about the non-DOM state is it shouldn't exist. It should go. Um, It should just be abolished instantly in both jurisdictions because it is completely ridiculous and it is um, an affront to any sense of fairness uh, from a tax point of view. But it's rooted, of course, in empire. And the reason why the non-DOM thing was created hundreds of years ago was because people um, in places like India, when it was part of the empire, were able to claim that all of their earnings from empire, um, when they were raping and pillaging in various parts of the world, or occupying and administering, shall I put it less pejoratively, various parts of the world, the profits from those activities should not be taxed back home in England. And so these privileges were granted. And it was a nonsense at the time, and it's a nonsense now. And and, And the idea that Ireland still has this on its books, which it does, is completely barking mad, as as mad as it is in in the UK. Sunak um, has also got into trouble because he had, uh, until relatively recently, something that a lot of your listeners will be very familiar with, which is a US green card, which um, essentially gave him the right, um, because it was assumed that he was resident, um, and the right to residence that he was exercising, to live in the United States. And of course, that too is, look, there's nothing illegal about any of these things, there's nothing uh, against the law about any of these things, but ethically and politically, it's not a good look. So Sunak is worth hundreds of millions in his own right. His, his wife is rumoured to be, in her own right, um, a near billionaire. So um, if, if Rishi was decide that this game is not worth the candle, he, w- he wouldn't be short of, of a few quid. But the way in which the British media have gone after him recently, his fall from grace from being almost a shoo-in to Boris Johnson's successor, to now people wondering whether he can keep his job and will he survive Boris Johnson's next cabinet reshuffle. It's a fall from grace that has been um, sudden, um, almost overnight, is I think an example or a reason why most people of talent, most people with money are not like Sunak. They don't go anywhere near modern politics. It's an awful, an awful game. I, I was, I was going to talk about um, the fact that here, the sec gen of the Department of Health um, was asked to prepare an investigation and report on his own role in the appointment of the CMO, Chief Medical Officer, to um, an academic role in Trinity. It's causing a lot of controversy here. Uh, but I thought that was a bizarre notion that the sec gen would be asked to compile a report on his own behaviour, basically. But anyway, that's that's beside the point. Before we wrap, I just like to reintroduce a concept that thankfully we haven't had for some time. Uh, but the COVID corner, give a few yeah. things to say. Um, yeah, that's been exercising me uh, uh, recently, and and we are running short of time. But um, one of the things that uh, I think it was the World Bank today, um, going back to what we said earlier on about economic growth, it too cut its global economic growth forecast, citing all sorts of very obvious risks, the war in Ukraine, inflation, interest rates, but also said that they, they are very worried about a COVID resurgence. Obviously, there's one in China as we speak, 
lots and lots of bits of China, not least Shanghai, are shut down. They are pursuing the famous zero COVID policy um, that you and I have discussed several times. Um, but there, there's various angles to this COVID debate that still, I think, are absolutely fascinating and tell us to be very humble when we are talking about COVID because of how much we don't actually know. There are a number of many huge mysteries about this virus. One is focused on the African experience. Now, different countries have had, within Africa have had very different experiences, but Africa as a whole you might remember at the beginning of this pandemic, people were worried that because of their inability to buy vaccines, that their relative inability to store in the cold chain the mRNA vaccines and all those other reasons, for, worried that COVID would absolutely devastate the continent of Africa. And the simple fact is, according to the numbers, it hasn't. And scientists and other people are very mystified as to this. People have all sorts of different explanations, but nothing is conclusive. Um, the statistics could be wrong, that the, the way in which COVID is measured in these countries is claimed to be an undercount. Uh, but people on the ground in those countries say that if there had been the COVID wave that was feared, then they would have seen it in terms of funeral announcements and all those other horrible things. Uh, it's the case that in the United States, Roughly 50% of people, despite all of the exposures that they've had, haven't had COVID. And there's a certain element of mystery about that. And there's an element of mystery about why people in households where COVID has raged amongst half the family, the other half, haven't had it. So the, the behaviour of the disease is still mystifying an awful lot of scientists. My final point in COVID Corner would, COVID corner would be to draw people's attention to a Vanity Fair article that was published this week about the debate over whether or not the virus itself was a lab leak or whether it was from the Wuhan meat market. It's a very long article, absolutely fascinating, well worth a read if people get the chance. Um, a couple of takeaways for me. Firstly, there's no smoking gun to conclusively prove one way or the other. But the sense that I took from the article is that there's an awful lot of scientists out there, more than I previously thought, who strongly suspect that it was a lab leak. And one quote that caught my eye, and it's, it's, it's using scientific jargon that, of course, I don't fully understand, but it looks um, quite interesting. And it talks about something called a furin cleavage site on the vaccine itself. And the scientist says, I can't think of a plausible natural scenario where you get from the bat virus because remember, that's where it's supposed to have come from originally. I can't think of a plausible natural scenario where you get from the bat virus to COVID, to SARS-CoV-2, when you insert exactly four amino acids, 12 nucleotides that all have to be added at the exact time to gain this function. And gain this function refers to the, to the type of research that has scared a lot of people to death, gain of function research, which an awful lot of laboratories um, indulge in when it comes to both, both virology and indeed other forms of science. And there's nothing particularly sinister about gain of function in principle. Uh, as I say, an awful lot of good science does involve looking at this. The, the way in which the World Health Organization investigated the lab leak controversy left an awful lot to be desired. It essentially amounted to them sitting down with one meeting, according to this article, just one meeting with the scientists from the laboratory in Wuhan and asking them, was it a lab leak? And when they said, no, it wasn't, that was the extent of their due diligence. 
the scientist who the American scientist who went on this um, visit to Wuhan turns out to be a, a very interesting character in in this Vanity Fair story. And what caused my jaw to drop open was the fact that he was selected or nominated or approved or all of the above by the Chinese authorities as the only American representative. And he's a very interesting character and well worth looking at. So I took away from this that there's no conclusive evidence either way. We will probably never know. But all this stuff about gain-of-function research and the controversy within the scientific community, proper scientists now, not some of the lulas that we've um, we see on social media debating these issues leads me to be deeply, deeply suspicious about whether this was in fact a lab leak. But we'll never know. Jim, That's we've um, taken far too much time. Yeah, way too much time. I'd just like to um, say goodbye, Chris, and also um, read out a tweet we got last Saturday from Shaggy. He said, that, good to hear you guys are back. Personally, I don't agree with the majority of your totally biased views, but you're entertaining. You can't say fairer than that, can you? No, you cannot. Thanks, Jim. Speak to you next time. Talk, Chris. You have been listening to Chris Johns and Jim Power on the other hand. We hope you enjoyed it. If you did, please sign up to our Substack account, www.cjpeconomics.substack.com. You can download our podcasts on Apple, Spotify, and other good podcast platforms. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market.